Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of Women Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and now. In today's episode, we speak to Amanda Gunawan, co-founding principal of OWIU, an abbreviation for The Only Way Is Up, a full-service architecture and design office founded in 2018 in Los Angeles and with ties in Singapore. Amanda shares with us some really sound advice as to what is needed when you set up your own architecture and design practice, the importance of business plan research and sourcing crucial support, and the differences between working in Asia and the US. Hi Amanda, thank you for joining us today. Can you first of all tell us about your favourite project, one that you've been most proud of? This one's actually a pretty easy one because it definitely has to be Biscuit Loft. And I think that it's because we got to be extremely hands-on with the project. And because of the scale of the project, we also got to really embody our design philosophies and we got to really be very careful and very detailed with the building process. There was a lot of learning. There was a lot of improvising. And it's kind of amazing because like, I've never been that hands-on with a project before where we would actually have our architects go in and be like fixing plumbing and learning about all these systems that we like learned about in theory, but never actually have to deal with in person ever because there'd be contractors and subcontractors doing them. Biscuit Loft is a project in LA, but you also have a lot of projects in Singapore as well. Can you tell us some of the differences in how you design for LA and Singapore? So I think it differs even in terms of program, like a lot of our projects in LA are mostly residential versus the ones in Singapore are mostly commercial spaces. And so that in itself is already different. But in terms of the building process itself, I would say that in over here, we're way more hands on. And I think that's because in Singapore, there's a lot of like labor. So there is a lot of workers that like foreign workers that actually help with the construction from start to finish. And because the labor is much cheaper there, we actually don't get to be that hands-on. So it's it's a lot easier actually to do a project over there, but we don't have as much autonomy as over here, which is quite interesting because it's really, really challenging to do a project here, but it's also way more fulfilling in that sense. And when you talk about challenging, that sort of leads me on to talking to you about your setting up of OWIU, which is an abbreviation for The Only Way Is Up. You set that up in 2018. How did you find it? What are sort of the key learnings that you took away from launching your own architectural practice? It all started with like an idea at first, and then it became more and more real. So we were actually working for Morphosis, but then my partner and I, like we had taken part in this competition randomly when we were still going to school. And so it was actually like a conceptual furniture design competition. And so we had designed this chair. It was just one of those things where we actually just, we just took part for just, we just, we, we just did it the night before and we just submitted a design then for some stroke of luck, we actually won. And 
on top of that, it actually started gaining a lot of traction on the internet. And so we had no idea that it was just getting circulated everywhere. And then somehow Paris and Milan Design Week caught wind of that. And so they emailed me and they were like, would you like to exhibit this piece? And we were like, um, but it, this is this was a conceptual project. And they're like, well, you have a chance to make it real and exhibit it if you like. And so we decided to carry that through. But at that time, we were working for Morphosis. And so we didn't want to dip our feet in like half, half like that. And so we basically decided, you know what, like we've built like a strong enough network where we feel comfortable to go out and start on our own. And we're going to do this. Like it's now or never. And that's like the, the more glamorous story, right? The story that you tell people, but of course there's the side in which you actually need to sit down and do the numbers and the, the side that's just not as fun to tell where you actually have to sit down and make this real. And this was your partner, Joel Wong, your business partner, who you actually met in high school. And that was the sort of the genesis of the chair design um, and then the beginning of this company. Yes, we were friends in high school and then we went to architecture school together and we worked on a lot of projects together as well. Obviously, as you very rightly put it, there is a glamorous side to, to having a business. And then there's also the very time consuming business side of it in terms of drawing up a business plan, finding funding, etc. You mentioned also that you had a strong network before you decided to start your company. How important is it to have that network in place and also to be able to access funding and support when you're putting a business plan together? Well, I hate to have to say yes, because you always want to believe that if you produce good work, then it just speaks for itself. But the world isn't always like that. So unfortunately, absolutely. I think that it's very important to have the context, everything that you could possibly need, especially I think in LA or in America, because you really can't do this on your own. Like there are a lot of things because of how business is structured here. There are a lot of like contacts and friends in the industry and outside the industry that you're going to need like help and advice from. And which would you say of those friends was the most important? Was it the accountant? Was it the lawyer? Was it the design community? What what was the key sort of central support unit that you had? I would actually say all of them. I wouldn't say that in Singapore, for example, but I would say over here, the lawyer is crucial. The accountant is crucial. Anybody in business who could give you advice because in architecture school, you're not exactly taught how to start a business and everyone like architects who have done this before, who can offer you any type of advice. That's all important. And even outside things that you don't think are even related to your discipline, like that's also very important because our clients always end up finding us through word of mouth. Right. That, that's interesting, isn't it? And how important is the social media networking word of mouth side of things when you're expanding a business? The social media side, I would say, is important, but it's not everything. I think that people really need to understand that social media doesn't bring you jobs, or at least it's never brought us any jobs. I think in a discipline like architecture, it's 
quite difficult for someone to approach you on social media and award you like a hundred thousand dollar project. So social media actually is more of a tool, like an educational tool for you to share with a large audience about your work and the things that you want to say to them. And it's for you to have discussions with people. It's a free and really easy platform for people to critique your work and have discourse. And it's, it really is more of an educational tool, I feel like, and like building up, just telling people what you're about. And it's it's a networking and and word of mouth really are critical. And do they have the same emphasis in Singapore and the US? Or would you say the US is more a word of mouth networking opportunity? I would say people in Asia and people in the US in general operate quite differently. I mean, they have different values, they have different ethics, etc. And I think that word of mouth is definitely key in America because... I like networking just seems like the most productive way to get jobs. And the job of an entrepreneur is really about convincing people why people need your services. And so once you've gotten one or two projects out, if they're as good as you believe them to be, then naturally the work will just speak for itself. And I think this holds true for both Asia and the United States, where in Asia, it's a lot more action oriented And then in the U.S., it's more about being able to sell your work. And do you divide up the skills that you need? Because I would suggest that designing is very different skill set to running a business. So do you have some strengths that each of you plays to with with keeping a business going? Yes. So we are actually here in the United States on this special visa called the Entrepreneur's Visa. And so what that means was that like allows you to set up a business over here. But what you have to do is actually produce a business plan and it has to show projections in which they believe that you're going to be making a profit and you're going to be expanding and you got to show growth over the next couple of years and coming out of architecture school and working for a firm, like we had no idea how to do this, but it's extremely, extremely good practice. Like I'm so thankful that we had been made to go through this process because it really like at the end of it, we did develop like uh, over like a hundred pages worth of this business plan. And one of it was to actually show letters and confirmations from prospective clients. So we had to produce at least five of those to show that these clients are basically promising to work with us the moment we become a legitimate company. So that in itself is also important to factor into the startup cost. So when you are trying to set up a business, I would say that you shouldn't just blindly like do it emotionally, right? Like I, I told you there was like the emotional side, the glamorous side that you tell everybody. And then there's the side where you're actually like, okay, is this going to work? Like I'm going to have to do the numbers. The design side and the business side, they do work tangentially. Like every time I tell people what I do for a living, I, I get people gushing and going, oh my God, like architecture, like uh, that, like they, they have this glamorous idea of architecture and design. But the truth is my job is very much 90% project and people management. And my favorite part of my day is really when I get to sit down on my computer for hours just to design, but that really doesn't happen very often. And like, that's the, but that's the impression that people have in an architect. 
But I also can't stress how important it is to make sure that you still manage to foster that side of you, like the design side, that you don't get caught up in like the business side too much because it's not just for the firm, but also for my personal well-being. It's important for me to be extremely involved in the design process and be constantly inspired. And so um, you kind of have to force yourself to like you make it a point to it's kind of like a little bit like exercising where you force yourself to do it like X hours per week. So it's really important to manage the balance, which I think is an incredibly important point. So talking about funding, did you have to go out and get funding in the beginning to set up? Or were you in a position where the jobs came in quickly enough to be able to manage everything? No, we did not have to get funding. I mean, we both had a certain amount of savings that we actually put in. And these numbers are very important, actually, like to factor in. Like you really need to sit down and come up with a concise business plan, calculate all your startup costs, like how much are you spending on your starting assets? And do you need an office space? Um, Are you going to be renting? Or will you just be working at home or will you be working at one of like, like those um, co-working spaces and then printers, paper, everything that you can think of at the top of your head that needed to be recorded with the business plan. And then how much are you potentially going to spend on expenses and then legal things as well. So like setting up a corporation, outsourcing labor, like, are you going to be doing that or are you going to hire And just basically so much research, so, so much research and ask a lot of friends and it varies from company to company and person to person. And so it's actually very important to just sit down and think about exactly what this number is. Like for us, we want it to be very safe and we wanted to make sure that whatever we have, like whatever, whatever number that we have, it's going to last us at least for 12 months even if we end up not getting any new jobs in that 12-month period. In terms of you coming out of architecture college but not having necessarily the business skills that you need, do you feel that that is something that architecture education systems need to look at? I think so, actually. Funnily enough, as you get licensed, they actually like teach you a thing or two about business and starting an architecture business. But in school, they don't. Maybe they do a little bit, but it doesn't it really doesn't compare to what you are going to be faced with. And also, I think in theory, like everything that we learn is, I would say, about at most 10 percent of what you're going to be faced with when you're starting your own company. And so, yeah, I do think that there is a lack in these things and maybe architectural education should do like some kind of mentoring program or something. What was the biggest surprise or challenge perhaps that you faced when you set up your business? I think it was very challenging to start up at this age And given our lack of experience, like that's always really, really difficult because even though, you know, you have the capabilities to work as good as everybody else, track record is one of the most important things in architecture. And so it's kind of chicken and egg. It's like, if you have no track record, we're not going to give you the job, but we're like, if you don't give us the job, then we can't prove to you that we can do it. And so like landing that first, like one or two projects, it's just so important. 
So would you say it's quite rare for um, yourself and Joel at your age, which I'm not going to inquire about, um, to, to be running a business in architecture? Is it something more for perhaps people who are in their, I don't know, late 30s, mid 40s? Yeah, I would say it's quite uncommon for people our age to go out and like or have the confidence to start their own architecture practice. But you certainly haven't let that put you off because you co-founded Inflection Builds. Can you talk to me a bit more about that and, and why you felt the need to start up this project and how it differs from OWIU? It goes back to what I was talking about with Biscuit Lofts, where um, we became very, very hands-on with the project. And so we kind of got to know what it was like to basically take on the project from design all the way to completion to basically manage all the construction and be as involved as we were with all the details. And so we kind of started running our projects like that. Like we would do that for other clients as well, where we would take on the project and like, sometimes it's actually the job of the contractor, but we go in and we're, we, we basically play that role. And because we love the construction part so much. And if truly we wanted to talk about careful craftsmanship, which is something that we preach at OWIU, then we surely must handle all the construction as well. And so that's how inflection came about, which is basically our construction arm. And we wanted to have the ability to handle a project from design all the way to build or at least give the client that option. So this gives you more control over the entire build process and presumably control over costs as well to some some extent. Exactly. And this happens very often, actually, when let's say you have an architect that's different from your contractor. And I've, I've spoken to a lot of people about this who have told me that this has been a problem for them. And so they have an architect designing for them. And they want a certain design and the architect comes up with something according to what they want. And maybe this architect is not as hands on with the construction as they're supposed to be. And so they design completely over budget. And so what happens is they take these drawings, they go to a contractor and they ask for bids and the project becomes more than twice what they had expected or they had budgeted for and they can't build it anymore because or they would completely have to downsize the project which is very disappointing to a client because like you you had something in mind and then all of a sudden i'm telling you that okay turns out you can only do one part of your house and sometimes they end up just not doing it at all and i've and i've met some clients who have been put in that position And so like being able to handle the project from like start to finish, usually one of the first questions that we have with the client is truly what is your max budget? And we're going to design according to that because we have so much knowledge in construction that we know exactly how much we can design and how much you can have. And so like the, there won't be any discrepancy in the work that's created and the work that's going to be completed. And is this an unusual approach? I would say it's not as common, but it's more, it's definitely more common in the United States than it is in other countries. This opens up architecture to the masses in some ways, because as you said, the budget is looked at holistically. It's not a question of the architect and then the contractor. It's it's done with a view to this is your total budget. You will get the job done. I think that for smaller projects, especially like smaller residential projects and remodels, 
I definitely think this is the way to go. But for larger, like 100 unit apartment buildings, I would not dare to take on the construction of that. I would just outsource everything. Okay. So there's a size constraint here. So where do you want to be in five years time? What is your vision there, Amanda? So I think in five years time, I'd like to have more international projects. I would like to have expanded because um, in OWIU, like we very much like to retain our, like retain our profits and invest it in other properties. So I would like to have established a property portfolio of a decent size. (laughs) Well, thank you really very much. That was a really interesting conversation, Amanda. I hope you felt the same way. Thank you. Yes, I did. We welcome your feedback on the pod. So please aim all your comments at wan-editorial at haymarket.com. These podcasts are available on Spotify, iTunes and Google Podcasts. So register, download and join us as we look into the world of architecture from a female perspective wherever you are.